0: Well, I know you think it's possible to love your work. Otherwise, you would not be listening to this. Hey, this is Dan Meller. This is this week's edition of 48 Days Online Radio. You know, I still get questions on that, obviously. People say, well, gee, if everybody loved their work, we wouldn't have people who pick up the garbage, who mow your yard. I'm saying, no. You got to be kidding me. I know people who do all kinds of things that maybe I wouldn't enjoy doing. But they do, in fact, love doing that. I mean, if you have been to a Nashville Predators hockey game recently, you know, they take a break and somebody comes flying out there and they, you know, spray down the plexiglass and wipe off the spit and saliva and blood. I mean, there are people who give their right arm to do that job. Now, that doesn't sound very appealing to me, but there are people who enjoy pretty much anything you can imagine. I mean, if you watch Mike Rowe with Dirty Jobs, you see the kind of things that he covers. Yeah, there are people who love Those kind of jobs. Well, hey, one of our sponsors today is audiblepodcast.com. I'm going to be giving you a suggested book to get in just a few minutes here, but you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash 48 days and browse the thousands and thousands of selections that they have there. You know how I feel about books changing your level of success. It's certainly been a big, big factor in anything that I've been able to do, the wisdom the things that were opened up to me as possibilities through reading great books so audiblepodcast.com slash 48 days i'm going to tell you how you can get a free book if you're not yet a member there in just a few minutes well here's some of the notes that we're going to be covering for this week some of the questions what's well let me give you a kind of a theme I'll give you a theme, and then we're going to be talking about one issue as well that I want to share with you. But what's the difference between fear and courage? I'm going to give you a definition for that in a minute. Here's some of the questions that I'm getting. Now, this one really kind of sets the stage for a bulk of questions that I want to address. How can I help the poor women in Kenya? Now, that that's just kind of a sampling. I get a lot of questions from people, knowing that I have a son who lives in Kenya, People who want to help others have a giving spirit, giving heart, totally commendable. We're going to talk about some of the challenges with that mindset, some of the ways that we try to help people that may not, in fact, help them at all. Well, another question, someone says, what was that book that made Joanne cry? Well, there's a book that I talk about frequently on here, and I'll give you the title of that again and why it made her cry. Someone says, Dan, using the 48 days job search, how many times should I call before it becomes problematic? Now, I talk about doing persistent follow-up when you're trying to get an interview and then after an interview as well. You know, so few people call after an interview. It's amazing how many people drop an opportunity where you could put yourself at the top of the pack if you were persistent in calling after the interview. We'll talk about that a little bit. Dan, did the homeschooling benefits outweigh the cost with your kids. Oh yeah. I hope we can get to that. Someone says, I dream of speaking, writing, training as a business. Where do I start making money? We'll see how much this we can get to. Here's our quotation for the day. And this comes from Dan Sullivan, Dan Sullivan from strategic coach in Toronto, been around forever. He has essentially mastermind groups of high potential individuals that meet together a couple times a year. Anyway, Dan Sullivan said this, I heard on a podcast this morning, fear is wetting your pants and just standing there. Courage is taking the next step with wet pants. Well, I like that kind of distinction between fear and courage. Fear gets you trapped, deer in the headlights kind of thing. That's not where you want to stay. Courage is going ahead, even if you wet your pants, going ahead and taking that next step. Okay, let me give you a short success story here, and then we'll move on into some of the questions. What I want to do, I want to share with you just real briefly what Joanne has done with her new book. Now she's got a new book that just came out called Be Your Finest Art. Now this is a major success story because this is not just a walk in the park for Joanne. This is something that required an intense amount of work and time. Took almost two years from start to finish on this. It turned in, I actually gave her a little book that I had bought the rights to called The Little Book of Big Ideas. A little book on creativity, creativity quotations, and I started updating it because I bought the rights to it. We were going to republish it under our own Vitology Press brand. And I just gave it to her. I said, you know, you're so interested in creativity. I said, why don't you just add your own thoughts to this and then we'll publish it and you can have something that has some of your own thinking about creativity in it. Well, that little book got left in the wayside because she started this major, major project, interviewed over 45 people, I think, that are profiled in the book, Be Your Finest Start, about what they did to release their art. And she's had an amazing journey herself in... After really becoming empty nesters, when our youngest child went off to college, it was the time for Joanne to recognize she, in essence, had lost her job. I mean, she loved being a mom, homemaker. In essence, she had lost her job when our kids were all gone, and the transition that she went through to find her own, her own creative self in that process is pretty interesting in and of itself. But she and Dorsey McHugh now have this new, beautifully done book. Be your finest art. I'll put a, sh- a link to that in the podcast notes today. They are having um, a launch party at Two Old Hippies down in the Gulch Hot Spot in Nashville. On Tuesday night, June the twenty fourth, So depending on when you're listening to this, it may already be over. But if you're in town able to stop by between six and seven thirty, it'd be delightful to see you there. So I'm just gonna share a little bit about that. I was gonna bring Joanne in here. She's in another part of the building as I speak. I was gonna bring her in here and talk to her, but they're in the middle of a very deep conversation in the art group right now. Now, the art group that meets here, I mean, there's a whole lot that happens in that group besides just doing art. And I wanted her to talk about that a little bit. I'll arrange to do that next week. We're both in the middle of a really busy week. I'll arrange to do that next week, do a short interview with Joanne about the new book, and just share a little bit about that. But that's our, I'm going to just highlight that for our success story today. And with that, we'll bring in here, bring in Queen to just sing... We are the champions. you get a story about what you're doing, now, we've got a lot of people that are putting new books out. I almost feel guilty talking about Joanne's because I get notified about so many books that people are doing. We love sharing those stories, so feel free to keep them in. I'll just make a list of new books coming out and share those. You can just send that note to Dan at 48days.com or go to the 48days.com site and just click on the podcast link there and you'll see an opportunity to... Leave your message there. Love to hear from you. Love hearing those stories. Well, there's a lot of things that we've got going on here. Just a couple quick updates. Uh, We've got the next... uh, the next coaching with excellence event coming up in August. Now that's already filling up. We only have one more open event. We've got one in September that's just for people who are in the coaching mastery program. But if you're interested in coaching, which a lot of you are, I keep seeing a lot of activity on 48days.net and we love to help people build that kind of business. And it often does go with coaching, speaking, writing, those training. Those are things that go together well. Coaching can be your kind of uh, core foundational piece, piece in that. The way that you can most quickly start making money is by coaching. And we've got some great success stories coming out of the Coaching Mastery Program and others who have been at Coaching with Excellence. So if you want to join us August 28th and 29th, just go to the 48days.com site, click on live events, and you'll see the You'll see the event there. I'll put again a note in our, in our show notes today for that. I'm going to have a lot of notes today because of some of the things that I'm going to be talking about here. Of course, you've also heard me talk about the Ultimate Advantage Cruise. That's coming up in February. Got a lot of excitement about that, a lot of questions about that. Actually, I had somebody yesterday request an interior room because he wanted to make sure it would be dark. Not I thought, oh my gosh, I can't imagine requesting an in- interior room on a cruise. I can't imagine being on a cruise without having a window at least to look out. And the rooms that we have booked for the cruise have the balcony. Now that doesn't mean they're a lot more expensive. It's really not that much different, but it gives you a spot to open the double doors and step out on your own little balcony, which we think is a wonderful way to enjoy the cruising experience. You know, I got to know from somebody, it's just a, just a little aside here that I thought was just precious. It just resonated with me. I just really liked it. I just really appreciated it. And somebody said, thank you again, Dan, for being a light along the road less traveled. I thought, what a, what a compliment, being a light along the road less traveled. I like that. I like the idea of the road less traveled, and I certainly enjoy being seen as a light along that path. Now, here's my book recommendation for today. And again, this is this you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash 48 days and you can get a free copy of this. The book is giving how each of us can change the world. Now, that's by Bill Clinton. You're going to understand here in a minute why I'm recommending that book, because it covers a lot of territory that I'm going to unpack here in the next couple questions. But it's giving how each of us can change the world. By Bill Clinton. Now when that came out, now it's been out a few years ago, years, but it's, it's the most balanced overview of how to give effectively that I think I've ever seen. Now it doesn't matter what your politics are, take that, wipe that off the slate, doesn't matter. When that book came out, I bought copies for everybody in my Eagles Club, Dave Ramsey and the other guys in there. I bought copies for everybody. I said, I know you guys aren't going to buy it because of your politics, but you need to read this book. And I I feel that strongly about it. So you can get your free copy of the audio of Giving, How Each of Us Can Change the World. A lot of you are asking questions about how you can do that. You know, how we can make the world a better place. How you can do something noble, humanitarian, godly, giving. Well, this book shares a really great overview of some ways that you can get engaged in ways that are responsible. Giving, How Each of Us Can Change the World by Bill Clinton, go to audiblepodcast.com slash 48 days you can get that as a free copy if you're not a regular member of audible yet now here's a question that comes from gretchen and this ties together with what i just shared there gretchen says dan this question is actually directed to jared and jared's my son who lives in nairobi kenya i've been to kenya three times in the last few years and i'm going back in 2015 i'm a successful entrepreneur and want to do something to help women through microenterprise I have no hesitancy about starting something in Kenya and yet feel lost as to how to begin because things function so differently there. Would Jared be willing to share some insight with me? Many thanks. I love listening to your good advice to aspiring entrepreneurs, Gretchen. Well, Gretchen, you I thank you for your question. Thank you for your heart and what you're doing. And you are so right. Things do work differently there. Things are, work so differently in Kenya that it's frightening to figure out what we can do to be effective. And quite frankly, Jared has changed his views dramatically in the 10 years that he's been in Africa in seeing how can we really help people effectively. I'm going to give you some links here to some information that has extreme bearing on this. There's a TED Talk series. It's actually an NPR TED Talk on the haves and the have-nots. Is there a right and a wrong way to help someone? This is from people who are on the ground in places like Africa, India, Cambodia, Thailand, other places like that where people are living in poverty. And they're saying, be careful about how you try to help someone. Now, I had somebody just send me a link to, let me go here and find who it was. This is from Francisco Rodriguez, who sent me a link to a book that is astounding. Now, it's a short book, it's a free download, and I'm gonna give you the link to that in the notes for today. The title is Stop Helping Us, A Call to Compassionately Move Beyond Charity, and it's written by Peter Greer, who's president and CEO of Hope International. Now, Peter wrote a book that I read earlier this year titled The Spiritual Dangers of Doing Good. When he recognized from being in the ground in some of these countries, the damage that is being done by well-meaning Americans primarily who are trying to help people in other parts of the world. And they're not helping This little book that I'm giving you a link to is Stop Helping Us. You know, we have poured trillions of dollars of aid into Africa, and they are the only third world country that has not gone through massive development in the last 20 years. We've poured trillions of dollars into Africa, and there are more people living in poverty today than there were 20 years ago. We have crippled them by trying to help them in ways that don't actually help them. Now, this is a really big issue. If you're interested in this at all and interested in being involved in the process or the conversations, it's certainly easy to find information. I'm going to give you several links to things that I think are very helpful in understanding this issue, but I think it's an important issue to understand because we've been duped into thinking that we're helping people when when you think about it even on a on a local level you think about somebody that you tried to help now here's here's a piece that i wanted to read just real quickly that comes from this book stop helping us but it comes actually from another book called toxic charity and he, the author, Bob Lupton, details the negative cycle of giving related to traditional charity. If you give once, now you can think about this if you're helping a homeless person or if you're helping somebody that is in Africa, in Ethiopia, or Haiti, or whatever. But think about this. He says, give once and you elicit appreciation. Give twice and you create anticipation. Give three times and you create expectation. Give four times and it becomes entitlement. Give five times and you establish dependency right down that cycle. That's what happens. And it's frightening to look at that. Now I, I know that I, I've seen that on a very local level. Some of you have heard me talk about Catherine, young lady who we've been helping since she got out of prison about five years ago. I, we, we go right down that thing. You give once, you elicit appreciation. Twice, you create anticipation. Three times, you create expectation. Jeez, did I do that? I mean, after I gave her the fifth car, guess where she thought the next one was coming from? Sure, I trained her to expect it to get it from me. She could destroy him. Didn't matter. Dan was going to give her another one because she needed it to get to work, to be responsible. Well, give four times, it becomes entitlement. Five times, you establish dependency. But now the interesting thing is, we view poverty as not having money and having material goods and not having an iPhone and not having a big screen TV or not being able to go to McDonald's. I mean, that's poverty. But when you ask people who are in poverty from our perspective, how do you define poverty? It's interesting what they share. Now, this is a little bit that comes again from this book, Stop Helping Us by Peter Greer. They did a study of people in Rwanda who are in a little savings program, most of them living on less than $2 a day, and they ask these people, How do you define poverty? Here are the t- top 10 answers in the order that they gave them from large groups of people. Number one, poverty is an empty heart. Number two, not knowing your abilities and strengths. Number three, not being able to make progress. Number four, isolation. Number five, no hope or belief in yourself, knowing you can't take care of your family. Number six, broken relationships. Number seven, not knowing God. Number eight, not having basic things to eat because you don't have any money. Number nine, a consequence of not sharing. Number 10, lack of good thoughts. Now that's pretty astounding because when we see that in that order, money was only mentioned once in the top 10 definitions of poverty. They define poverty much differently than we do as rich Americans looking into their situation. So if poverty is not only a material deficit, but also not knowing one's potential abilities and strengths, the kind of things we talk about here at 48 days all the time, you know, as well as having an empty heart, then traditional charity neglects to address the root causes of poverty. And that's the real issue. The way that we try to address poverty is we blow into a town, give them all shoes and clothes and food to eat and leave and think that we've helped alleviate poverty. No, what we've done is move them one step up in that train that goes right directly to dependency. For one, and, and Jared talks about this a lot, and sure, Jared's certainly willing to talk about this with people. I mean, Jared's involved in business in Nairobi. He's not involved in a nonprofit. He's not involved in things that are giving people anything. He's involved in business, branding and marketing, helping growing entrepreneurial businesses there be more effective in what they're doing. It's He makes a lot of money doing that. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, don't think that he's over there just, you know, sacrificing for Jesus. I mean, he, he cringes at that kind of mentality. And people come over there and they they have phrases like people come over there to pet the poor. It's like going to the zoo to feel sorry for the animals. And people come over there for a week and then leave. And it, those things don't help alleviate poverty. you want To alleviate poverty, you have to get engaged with people, see the the world from their perspective, and teach them ways to become self-sufficient. So, Back to Gretchen's question, yeah, I love microenterprise. I mean, read things like um, Muhammad Yunus' book on banker to the poor. I mean, he developed the idea of microenterprise lending with Grameen Bank. I mean, there are a lot of things that help us understand how to do that better. But I'll put the links for everything that I've talked about here in the notes for today. Deep, deep topics. But I think it's something that we need to take a fresh look at how we're helping others. I mean, look at what we've done in the United States. We don't have to go somewhere else. We don't have to go to another country to see how typical charity hurts people. I mean, we've created generations of people now who expect to be on welfare. They expect to have housing, medical care, food taken care of, because that's what mom and dad had. Grandma and grandpa had that. So we've trained entire generations to expect that. What's the most helpful thing for people who are in that situation? Is it to yet give them one more meal, make sure they get a roof over their head? I'm not sure that it is. Now, some of the best solutions are probably going to sound cruel, but there are people who live in Africa who are in fact saying, stop helping us. The best thing you can do for our country is stay away. And let us figure this out on our own. Now, if you bring that down to a really personal level, I mean, it, it, there are people who are homeless, and I put that in quotes as I said it. My hands instinctively went up because there are people who are along the exit ramps of the streets in your town who stand there with creative signs. And there are people who make two or $300 a day by being creative in how they're being homeless. I I almost see that as a form of entrepreneurship and that's okay, but I mean, I'm not sure that's a good long-term plan, but if you really want to help somebody, is it a matter of just giving them a $5 bill or buying them a meal? What what does that do in terms of the long-term for that person? Probably not much. Now, the challenge with all this is that to really help change the direction of somebody's life takes time it takes emotional energy it's not just writing a check writing a check is easy we've capitulated in thinking that we just give to our churches or non-profit organizations hey they're going to take care of it we don't have to invest any time and the solutions are not working well at all not working well, we can be a part to change that. I'm confident. I'm, I'm always optimistic. My goodness, as I talk about these things, it's not that I'm negative at all about what our chances are for doing things that really do help people. You've heard me talk about, I've stopped giving Catherine cars and gee, she has 3,000 bucks saved up in cash because I told her that's the way she was gonna get her next car. She's excited about doing that has more money saved up than most Americans ever have toward the purchase of a car what a phenomenal thing. So I think there are new ways that we can do it. Get involved in this process. Give me your feedback. Let me know as you go through some of the links and resources that I'll give you in today's message right here. Okay. Now here's a question that says, Dan, quite some time ago, you mentioned a book on the podcast. It was a book that affected Joanne deeply and made her cry, had something to do with uh, what happens, you know, when we're helping others, does it ring a bell for you? If so, can you pass on the name of the book? Well, this relates as well to exactly what we're talking about, because that book that affected Joanne so profoundly is titled, When Pleasing Others is Hurting You. When Pleasing Others is Hurting You by Dr. David Hawkins. Joanne has always been somebody to willingly help others in any way that we had. I used to joke, even as a young married couple, I mean, we get a microwave. Geez, three days later, I come home and it's not there. Just like, well, we can get along without one. You know, I knew somebody with a new baby. They really needed it to heat up, you know, bottles. I gave it to them. TVs. I have no idea how many TVs we've gone through. Not that that's a big help to somebody at this point, but we've certainly given away a lot. But Joanne, it's just her nature, just to give and to help and to be there and to not say no, to nurture and care for other people. I love that about her. But she realized a few years ago that she had almost lost a sense of who she was in the process. She was so directed by what other people expected her to do that she wasn't sure who she was. And she got that book, a friend of ours recommended it, When Pleasing Others is Hurting You. And you can go to Amazon and find that there's not an audio version of that, so I can't direct you to Audible Podcast for that, but you can get a physical copy. It's a little paperback. That's the book that really put her on a different path. Now, fortunately, it did not mean that she stopped caring about other people and you know, became some crass, cold hard person no not at all my gosh that would scare me to death but she realized there has to be some boundaries there and saying no sometimes not only protects your own well-being and health and emotional wellness but it can also be a helpful thing to the other person in that saying no when you aren't just an easy source for what somebody else needs sometimes equips them to become more self-sufficient themselves and that can be with Kids, friends, family, people you're trying to help, but that's the book when pleasing others is hurting you. Now we'll switch gears a little bit here. We're about halfway through. We'll switch gears a little bit about with some of the questions here. This comes from Brenton, who says, Dan, when using your job search technique, at what point should we stop doing the follow-up call on any one employer? If we're unable to get through to them. I'm using your job search method. I even created a spreadsheet to help me track everything. Over the last two business days, I've tried the follow-up call three times. First, two times the employer was away from his desk. I left a message a second time. And this third time, the receptionist was told to ask me to leave a voice message, and he would get back to me. I plan to call later today if my call is not returned and if I still can't get in touch with him, I might call one last time tomorrow, at which point I will likely stop trying and move to the next employer. It seems to go beyond that would just be problematic. My view is when attempting the follow-up call, how many times to call just depends on what your gut instinct tells you. So I'm curious to get your feedback on how many times a follow-up call should be attempted with one employer before giving up on that one and moving on to the next employer. I suppose another option would be just stop with that one temporarily and come back to try again after a couple of weeks have passed. Your help is much appreciated Britain. Well, thanks for your, your question. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It has a lot to do with personality because some people will feel like they're being pushy really quickly, but really it comes down to the fear of rejection. Now, if you're not, don't see yourself as a salesperson. And we're going to talk about that, too, I hope, here in a minute. But if you don't see yourself as a salesperson, knocking on doors to sell water filters would probably make you nauseous to think about that. But when you're looking for a job, you are selling a product, and that product is you. And the more you see it in that way, the more success you'll have. But you also, you're going to experience the same kind of things that any salesperson does. What if you knock on this door and they say, why are you disturbing us during our dinner hour? Get off our property. We never want to see you again. Slam. I mean, that would be a horrible, horrible rejection. Salespeople are going to experience that. Good salespeople recognize, hey, that's their problem, not mine. I'll go to the next door. They're going to be glad I showed up. Well, you have to have the same kind of attitude when you're in a job search in that you keep knocking on doors. Now what you're talking about here is the challenge of getting an interview set up. So you've sent out your your introduction letter, cover letter, resume, you're doing the initial phone follow-up. That's the sequence in the 48 days job search. So you're doing that sequence, so you're calling people to get an interview. How many times should you call? The fact that the person you're calling said to leave a message and they'd get back to you is pretty promising. That's a pretty much an open door. So doing that, yeah, by all means continue. If you're trying to get the interview on the front end, if you call three or four times, that's probably enough to move on because you should have 30 to 40 companies in your targeted list. Now see, if you've got two companies that you're trying to get into, then you better make a plan to be way more persistent because you're going to run out of options real quick. But in the 48 days job search strategy, I've got identify 30 to 40 companies. So if you've got that and you made three to four calls and you haven't been able to connect with somebody to, to set up an interview, yeah, go ahead and just work the remaining leads that you have because you're going to have enough there. So you still end up getting five or six interviews, you are know, getting two or three job offers. I mean, that's the way it's going to work. Now, the other part of this is what if you have had an interview This is the back end of this. What if you've already had an interview? Because my recommendation then in the job search strategy is to call. A couple days later, you call. Now think about what happens if somebody's been interviewing. I mean, most people do not enjoy the process of interviewing. They see it as a necessary evil to get somebody in the seat that they need to fill, but it's certainly not something that they enjoy spending their time. They see it as a distraction from the real work that they ought to do. That's almost without exception the way it's viewed. What you want to do is make their job easy. So they've interviewed six people. They're having a hard time ranking those from one to six. You call. You were number four on the list, but you call. I mean, you're number four in terms of their choices, but you call. Numbers one, two, three, don't call. You call and say, golly, enjoyed our time together when we interviewed on Tuesday, just want to let you know, you know, this is something else I thought of afterward. This is something I think I could really do to bring value to the company. Eager to get back to you. I'm eager to get started with you. Think I can help the company accomplish the goals that we discussed. Wow. All of a sudden you just moved yourself up the ladder dramatically. And so few people do that. And what's what happens is when you have interviewed with the company, you have earned the right to know where they are in the hiring decision making process. So you don't need to apologize then about calling repeatedly and do call repeatedly. It can make a major difference. I know a guy who interviews four salespeople. So he'll do this. He'll have you in on on Friday, Dan. Boy, I really like what I'm seeing here. I like the way we connect. I think this is going to be a great fit for you. Tell you what, you call me on Monday morning and we'll discuss the next steps. Well, oh, what are you going to do that weekend? You think, Oh my gosh, the guy loves me He already told me we're going to go to the next step. It's just a matter of filling out the paperwork. I'll be started. This is awesome. You tell your friends, gee, I landed this great, great job. And Monday morning you call, gee, don't get through Tuesday morning. You call don't and leave a message. No response. What is your thinking likely to be? Your thinking is likely to be, oh, geez, he interviewed somebody else. He liked them better. They got the job I did. not woe is me. I got to start all over again. But you know what the guy is purposely doing? He ignores your first three callbacks after having told you, call me on Monday morning. We'll discuss the next steps. He ignores your first three callbacks. because Why? He wants to see, are you really a salesperson or are you not? That's exactly, it's just a test. If you call the fourth time, he says, hey, man, delighted to talk to you. Why don't you come in this afternoon at two o'clock? We'll get you started. That's all it takes. It's a part of the interviewing process to see, are you really a salesperson? Are you the kind of person they're going to want to have on their team where when you're told no, you don't stop. You keep coming back. That's exactly what he's doing. Well, here's a question. This is a homeschooling question. It comes from Anthony, who says, "Dan, I've heard you often talk about homeschooling your son Jared and Ashley, using Zig Ziglar recordings as one type of educational tool. Yes, we did. Could you provide some information regarding additional resources and tools that you used in the homeschooling process? Would you recommend homeschooling? In other words, did you find the benefits outweighing the cost?" Also, do you have any recommendations for resources and tools to help nurture the entrepreneurial spirit of children during the homeschooling process? Well, yes, yes, yes to all those things. We love the homeschooling experience. It was not something that we really were looking forward to. But when we saw that Jared, our second child, was never going to fit in a classroom, I mean, what, what happens to a kid? when the teacher asks him to stand up in the first grade and read a paragraph and they get the words all jumbled up because they see him backwards and upside down. Now, there's a couple things that are going to happen. The kid is going to get bullied, made fun of, laughed at. The kid's going to become a clown and turn into the next Robin Williams. I mean, there's some different directions that can happen, but you know that's going to be a challenge. We saw Jared was never going to fit. In a classroom and we pulled him out and decided to homeschool him that was not something that we were looking forward to but we saw it as the best option for a child who was going to struggle in school joanne got totally invested in the process and we loved it now with that we recognized how much of their learning could come from just living life well It did not have to come from sitting their little butts in a seat and making them stay there for eight hours a day like you do in school. It didn't have anything to do with that. I mean, if they were in a in a seat for an hour and a half a day, it was probably an exceptional day because they were learning from living life. So they traveled with me. One time I had a speaking engagement in New York City. And so we made some interesting stops on our way up there. We stopped. There's actually a book, having been raised in the Mennonite environment, there's a book called Mennonite Your Way. Mennonites don't think it's good stewardship to spend money for hotels when there are people who have beds that are available in their homes. So Mennonite homes are open to others who are traveling. It's one of the big things that I experienced as as the son of a Mennonite pastor growing up. We always had people at our house and people that we didn't know who were just traveling through but needed a place to stay. So they didn't go down to the Holiday Inn. They just knew that we were a Mennonite family in the area. Well, sure, they knew our home was open. So we we love that kind of mentality. We love that kind of concept. So there have been a lot of times where we've used That book, Mennonite Your Way, and we make arrangements in advance to stay with a family. So I was going to speak in New York, so we stayed with a family in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, just one night. But he had been a former Amish bishop, they had a beautiful, beautiful home, and he made brooms just as kind of a retirement hobby. Well, we got up early the next morning, and he made each of our children, Jared and Ashley, who were traveling with us, a broom. I mean what an enriching experience to see the machine that he used and to hear his story talk about his life and his passion for making these beautiful brooms that was part of their educational process then we went on and we stayed in a huderite colony now there's only two in the united states one in colorado and one in upstate new york but the, the people live in colony they live essentially in dormitories and the men had a toy manufacturing business and then the women were responsible for educating the children meals and housekeeping and so on but we stayed there for a couple of days again and really eye-opening experience to see people living in a different kind of cultural experience like that but those are the kind of things we were able to do with our children as part of their schooling process another thing we did when jared was 14 years old i bought a 1968 volkswagen carmen Gia. We pulled it into the garage, worked on it for a year and a half before we ever pulled it out. So by the time he turned 16, we had a really gorgeous little car. We had pulled out all the glass and put new rubber around the glass seals, new carpet, pulled the engine out, reworked it, sanded the body hours and hours and hours, sanded the body, painted it a Porsche, guards red, and had this gorgeous little car. But in doing that, he learned about physics. He learned about electrical components. He learned about uh Internal combustion engines or about, I mean, think about all the different things that he learned about. I mean, how to do mathematics and how to make things work, how to figure things out. Learned it by doing rather than just by reading a textbook and regurgitating what's in the textbook. Ashley learned how to do things in the kitchen that most girls don't learn these days. She baked amazing apple pies and would sell those So yeah, we taught them entrepreneurial skills as part of their schooling. What does it cost to get the ingredients that goes in an apple pie? What can you sell it for? What's your profit margin? I mean, Jared did bicycle repairs in the neighborhood that we lived in at the time where he would bring a bike in. He had a special where for $5, he'd do any kind of flat repair, $5. Well, guess what else happened? And he also had free pickup and delivery because we lived in a community, a real close community that had 433 homes in it. So he could walk anywhere, even as a 14-year-old. So I didn't have to drive him down, you know, the pizza shop or ice cream shop or something where to work. No, he could walk to do anything that he had to do, connect with his business. But here's what's true about most bicycles that have a flat tire. They also have other things where Jared could go back to the owner and say, Wow, I noticed the chain is rusty. You know, the gear mechanism is really not working very well. I can do a spring tune-up on that for 35 bucks. You know, no parts required, just a tune up. And he would make additional money. And so he very quickly saw how by upselling good customers, by giving them something they really needed and giving them great service, he could effectively make three, four hundred dollars a week. And this was while he was going to school, but it was an entrepreneurial business. I mean, if we were going to study the stars, we're going to study astronomy. We didn't just read about it in a book. We'd go down to the Vanderbilt Observatory, and they'd set up where we could actually use their observatory and learn from them. If we wanted to know about gardening, we didn't have to just read a book. we plant a garden. We grew all kinds of things. You know, we had animals. I mean, our kids learned by doing See, I think it's our responsibility to educate our children. I mean, schools can give them knowledge, but it's not likely to be the key component in helping them know their passions, their talents, learning integrity and building character. I mean, learning the kind of things that are going to make them contributing adults where they aren't just standing somewhere with their hand out expecting entitlements. I mean, those are things that parents do. And homeschooling, you know, it allows us to integrate those important values into the learning process. It, education is not just about memorizing facts and repeating them. Well, great question. I went probably went went long on that. Um, I do not. I, I'm really not up to date on homeschooling resources There are a lot of umbrella organizations that can give you a curriculum that you can use so you can have your kids tested at those important points to make sure they really are getting the basics so they can graduate you know, and holding their head high and get a real diploma. But um, we've got lots of grandkids that are being homeschooled. Yeah, we love the process and think that it's a way to live life together and to give our kids really the important characteristics that they're going to need to be successful down the road. This comes from Evie from Reno. Now, this is a different kind of question. He says, Dan, I've been... I have a man bites dog question for you as an avid listener of your weekly radio show for several years. Now I realize most of the questions you receive relate to listeners desperately hoping to move away from dead end jobs or unfortunate life situations and into the career or lifestyle they've always dreamed of. My situation is the opposite for the past 22 years. I've had the unique opportunity of serving as a fighter pilot in the U S Navy. It's been the fulfillment of my childhood dream and a tremendously exciting and rewarding career. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. However, my future options in the Navy are limited, and the numerous moves in different schools over the years have taken its toll on my family, so it's time to move on. The problem I'm having is finding a second act that will be as rewarding, personally and professionally, as the first. Being a fighter pilot is all I've ever wanted since I was a young boy. The pure joy of flying a high-performance aircraft and the ability of serving this great nation in the cloth of its military have become part of my identity. I'm having a difficult time finding anything else that measures up. Furthermore, my wife and I de- differ on where we think the best place to settle down is. After, virtually, after having virtually no say in where we've lived for the past two decades, I know it's her turn to choose where we go, but her first choice is my last further complicating my transition and clouding the picture of the ideal life a couple years down the road. I heard you mention in a previous podcast that the impending revision to 48 Days to the Work You Love will have a supplement for the military member. I hope it comes out in time to help me before I retire in the summer of 2015. Thanks for all you do to help the lives of so many. The world is indebted to you sincerely, Victor. Well, wow, thanks for your um, experience fully explained question and it certainly is a challenging one to be in a career that you love but you know it's coming to an end now a lot of people experience that so a lot of you listening you know are in something that you can identify with victor on this because you're in something that yeah it's been a great career but you're approaching for whatever reasons the technology is changing the industry is kind of fading out and you're at an age where uh, you are being moved out whatever the reasons you're confronted with this second act. Now, there is a book out there. Nancy Coleman wrote Second Act Careers. There's other things that deal specifically with that. Yes, I am going to have an addendum to 48 Days to the Work You Love, specifically for military veterans to address some of these unique kind of things, because the transition back into civilian life, as we call it, is often a a very challenging one. But I'm going to take this just kind of a high view of this, Victor. There's so many things that are involved where obviously, you know, it ought to be an exciting time for you and your family to be anticipating this and be able to, for the first time, really choose where you're going to live. And there ought to be a lot of agreement on that. Obviously, those are some other things that you guys are going to just have to work through. But to go from an illustrious career, like you described, 22 years as a fighter pilot, it doesn't mean that now you have to just, you know, work on a potato chip truck. I mean, there ought to be other things that should not be in as much as that is a fulfillment of your dream. Go back to what are the things that really drive you? What are the things that identify your mission, your purpose, your calling in life? That ought to give you a larger sense of why this is one example, but not the only example. I mean, that's why in working with physicians, dentists, attorneys, and pastors, people like that, who often uh, recognize their they need to make a change again for whatever reason we can look at go back a step step back take a higher view of what is it that led them to do that initially and then we simply look for another application of that now when i was a graduate student one of my graduate programs i was part i was the student representative on a search committee for a new head of the psychology department it was an amazing opportunity. I, I made some wonderful contacts, but one of those with was with meeting with Dr. John O'Connell, who was a high-ranking official at the U.S. Naval Academy in Colorado Springs. Joanne and I had the opportunity to go out there and spend a couple days with John and his wife in their beautiful house, and he was at the point where he, he saw it as financially irresponsible to stay in the Navy. He needed to move on because he could retire, and get, I think, like half of his current pay, which was astounding at that point. It continued to get that, and he knew he could get another position. He is the person we selected as the head of the psychology department at Western Kentucky University. That's an example of a second career that builds on what you've done in the first part of your career you ought to be able to come up with eight or ten things that would be possibilities things that are not just less than things that are not just a big demotion but things that really allow you to leverage the unique experience that you've already had and put you into something that would not be in the military but would be something that would be equally as fulfilling and rewarding and financially as prosperous as what you're doing now. I'm confident that those things really are there. Well, I have some more questions here. We're gonna have to make make that it for today. Go back. I hope it's been helpful today. Some of the things we talked about are not just the nuts and bolts of jobs and business like we often talk about. This issue of helping others is a major, major issue that I hope we can all understand and do better. I think we can do a better job of helping people than what we've done traditionally. I know that we can. I know Joanna and I are experimenting with some things. Our kids certainly are. Jared and I, Leah, And their little baby, they're getting ready to leave Africa, and they're moving to Brazil. They're going to Florinopolis, Brazil in a couple months. Uh, Just another uh, stop on their entrepreneurial journey. Uh, They certainly have not lost a heart for helping people, but they're figuring out better ways to really make an impact and to help people in a larger sense than just taking care of their meal today. So I hope that's been helpful. Again, the kind of things that we cover on here cover a lot of territory. I recognize that. But uh, being successful involves a whole lot more than just doing work that we love. A successful life does integrate the other components. It does involve our relationships, our health, and the other kind of things that we talk about here. So thanks for being part of this community, in 48 daysnet Let us know what's happening with you. Send us your questions. Appreciate those. Thanks for being part of this community that is, in fact, finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Don't settle for less.